Our scripture this morning is 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 11. I invite you to stand for the reading of that. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment? instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You may be seated. Get that later. Let me say, first of all, that if you remember back to prior to the Lenten season when we were going through 1 Corinthians, and I doubt that any of you do, but if you do, you might realize that we stopped with chapter 5, excuse me, we stopped with chapter 4, and we're picking up with chapter 6. I am not ignoring chapter 5. We will will get there. Uh, For a number of reasons, it was not the thing for this morning. So, uh, don't don't fret. We'll, We'll get back there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the ability to be here this morning, to be present before you. We pray that as we look into your word, your Holy Spirit would work and move among us. That you would show us things from from your word and, and, and from your heart, particularly in terms of how we we love and care for one another. In Jesus' name we pray. The title of my message this morning is, Can't We All Just Get Along? And I have two questions for for you related to that title. First, where did that phrase originate or at least gain major publicity? Anybody remember? You have to be a certain age and have a good memory to, to, uh, to answer that question. What? Peanuts. I don't know. That's not the one I was thinking of. Maybe it, maybe it was peanuts. 
How about Rodney King? Anybody remember Rodney King? On March 3, 1991, King was arrested after a high-speed car chase in Los Angeles. The arrest was caught on tape and showed King being tasered, battered with nightsticks, kicked, and stomped on by police as he lay on the ground. The tape was played over and over again on the news all around the world, and most who saw it were outraged at the excessive force that was used by the officers making the arrest. While several of the officers were later convicted on federal charges, when they were tried in state court, they were all found innocent, which touched off the L.A. riots of 1992. Federal troops were called in. 37 people were killed. More than 1,300 were injured, and over 4,000 were arrested. Property damage was estimated at over $200 million. People were so outraged at the injustice that they were destroying their own communities, looting local merchants, killing and injuring innocent neighbors. It was frankly much like the more recent riots that followed the killing of George Floyd, which I don't think any of us have, have forgotten that. But finally, King, the actual victim of, the justice, uh, of injustice, went on TV in a hastily prepared press conference and called for end, an end to the violence, and he raised the question, can't we all just get along? And that received play for quite a while. I think the answer more than 30 years later is a resounding no. We seem to be more divided than ever over everything imaginable. The second question I have you is very, for you is a, very much a shot in the dark. It's like those contests where you have a great big glass jar and it's filled with jelly beans and you're asked to, to guess how many jelly beans there are. The question is, when you search on the Internet that phrase, can't we all just get along, how many results, websites, blogs, etc., do you think come up? Anybody want to guess? Well, according to the numbers at the top of the first page, there are approximately 238 million. 238 million various sources that respond to that. I did not go through them all this week. I, I want to say that right off the bat. I, I only looked at the summaries for, for some of those on the first few pages. And those results de dealt with race relations, workplace situations, higher education, farm businesses, public policy, foreign policy, political parties, government administration, language wars, generation gaps, parenting, biking, even libraries. I'm not sure what you fight about in libraries. And yes, even the church. Apparently, we can't get along anywhere. In our text from 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is addressing conflict in the church. And he begins with the problem of lawsuits in the church. We may think that lawsuits are a modern thing, but they are not at all. There was a great difference in the Jewish and Greek cultures regarding this issue. To the Greeks, lawsuits were a part of everyday life. They loved these public challenges. They were a form of entertainment to them. And, and virtually everyone in the community was involved in, in the process. They probably loved jury duty. The Corinthian believers had been so much a part of this system 
they probably didn't think about the damage that was being done when conflicts were handled in this way. The Jews, on the other hand, had always settled their disputes privately or in synagogue courts, never before pagans. They'd made arrangements with both the Romans and the Greeks to settle their own disputes. That's why Jesus was tried before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, before he went to Pilate. And if they had had the, the power within themselves to order the crucifixion, they probably would have never got to Pilate, but they didn't have that power. Lawsuits have become a big problem in our society today. Not so much as a matter of entertainment, although we do find entertainment on TV frequently over lawsuits, but more uh, as a get-rich-quick scheme. The moment something bad happens to someone, they see dollar signs, and they start looking for someone who they can sue in order to, to make money. The Church of the Brethren, by the way, has always stood against lawsuits, particularly among those within the church. According to Daryl Claussen, the lawsuit explosion has even hit the church in recent years. Here are a few examples. A pastor sued his denomination for age discrimination because he couldn't find a church willing to pay him the salary that he demanded. The board of trustees of a church in Louisiana filed suit to remove their pastor from his position. Don't get any ideas. And a few days later, another group claiming to be the real trustees filed a countersuit asking those who, that had filed the previous suit be removed as church members. And a family in Illinois sued their church for injuries their 15-year-old son suffered at a church picnic when he fell out of a tree. The parents had watched him climb the tree. They had warned him to be careful because it was dangerous, but when he fell, they sued the church anyway. Paul points out a number of problems with this legal approach. The first is trusting judgment to non-believers. Paul isn't saying, and we shouldn't say, that there are no good judges or lawyers or arbitrators in our legal system. There are. There are some very good and godly men in some of those positions, men and women in those positions. But as believers, we have God's word. We have the Holy Spirit. Paul has already told us that we should have the mind of Christ. And we have specific God-given instructions for dealing with conflict. And we should have a different perspective and a different goal as we deal with conflict situations in the church. Paul seems to be saying that even those not highly regarded in the church should be in a much better place to make judgments among brothers and sisters in Christ than those outside the faith. The second problem that arises is the destruction of unity within the church. The purpose of church discipline is just is restoration. You can see that in Galatians. You can certainly see that in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, where we're given specific instructions on how these things are to work. First, we're to go one-on-one. -on -one to the person who we, we think has offended us. And then with an independent third party if, if they're not willing to listen. And then perhaps before the church, but no legal, no legal action, no courtroom is ever mentioned. However, for as often as we read that passage, we rarely use it. When we go outside of God's design to engage in legal 
battles or opinion wars. We get into the arena of winners and losers, and that doesn't promote unity. Rather, it destroys it. And there are no real winners. Everyone loses in the end. Jim Butcher writes, it's kind of like a husband fighting with his wife over her purchases. We could stop right there. You all know this is trouble right from the beginning, right? It's kind of like a husband fighting with his wife over her purchases. She says she hasn't spent $200 on clothes, but the husband angrily disagrees. Unwilling to let it go, he digs through the receipts of the last two months and turns up proof that she actually spent $275 on clothes for herself. He holds the receipts up to her face, yelling, See, I told you! The husband, we can safely say, has won the battle but lost the war. He's won a small victory, but at a long-term higher cost to his marriage. In a similar way, we may win the battle in court, or maybe the court of public opinion against a brother or sister, but at a long-term cost of destroying our public witness. And that points to the third problem, damaging the witness of the church. When we as brothers and sisters in Christ can't get along, when we can't even resolve our issues within the family, within the body, what good is our faith? Why would, why would non-believers want what we have? Why would they want to be a part of us? What really do we have to offer those around us? A number of years ago, Tim LaHaye, author of Books and Tapes in the Left Behind series, sued his Christian producers. Apparently, he, he wanted the movie to go big time, and there, there wasn't as much spent on the movie as he would have wanted. LaHaye's lawyer was quoted in Crosswork.com as saying, The lawsuit is not about money. Dr. LaHaye is in a place in his life where money is not the issue. They wanted to provide a really strong Christian message. The writer for Crosswalk.com wrote, Yet the most successful Christian movie in history may end up being the most high-profile case of Christian suing Christian ever. What kind of powerful witness is that? You know, it kind, of, kind of like the L.A. rioters. We only damage ourselves and our community of faith by the way we respond. In the love and mercy that Christ has shown us, in the wisdom provided by God's Word and His Holy Spirit, we need to resolve these kind of issues. Not to, to bury them or, or cover them up, but to resolve them. And this isn't just about lawsuits. Same is true for open conflict. We can't pat ourselves on the back because no one in our church has sued anybody else in our church or, or in another church, at least recently, as far as I know. But certainly these last two points come into play whenever there is open conflict in the church. And unfortunately, the church has been parading our open conflicts before the world for many years, at times even celebrating our disunity. And we wonder why believers aren't rushing to join us or, or listening to what we have to say. Even when our conflict is on a much scalar, smaller scale, just within the local church, it will have negative ramifications. Paul says that rather than damaging the body, we should allow ourselves to be wronged. We should allow ourselves to be cheated. We should allow ourselves to be taken advantage of. And that's a very tough one for most of us to swallow. 
It goes against our human nature. It goes against our culture. We've been taught to stand up for our rights, to, to protect what ours, what's ours, to not allow anyone to take advantage of us. Yet Paul's words to the church are pretty clear. Having said all that, there may be times when our hands are forced, when we have no other choice in the matter. In our society, some matters must be settled or resolved in a court of law. But this should always be a last resort, especially when fellow Christians are involved. The, west, the rest of what Paul writes here points to the why and how of this vulnerable attitude to which he has called us. Paul reminds each of us, remember who you were. Remember who you were. He lists some actions characteristic of those who are outside the kingdom. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Some kind of wanna, want to run from these verses because they confront lifestyles that many in the world have embraced. Paul isn't saying that anyone who has ever been involved in these things is hopelessly lost and, and can never be forgiven. But he is saying that being controlled by sexual desires, being controlled by possessions and greed, being controlled by an evil tongue or, or food or drink is characteristic of those outside the kingdom of God. We, has, we have lived in the past as those outside the kingdom of God. Those who would inherit the kingdom of God must be controlled by the Spirit of God. We must follow the example and teachings of, of Jesus. He must rule and reign in our lives. Paul finishes off that list and writes, and that is what some of you were. We may not have those specific sins, but we were all in that position. So Paul would say the same to us because we fell prey to temptation as well. Our actions caused us to be disinherited. We were distanced from our relationship with Jesus Christ. We were outside of his kingdom. We had no claim to eternal life. We were separated from the riches of his grace and we had no place in the family of God. And there was nothing we could do about it. There was no way to undo it or make it right. No way to pay for it or, or to make it go away. We were hopelessly and helplessly lost. This is where each of us were at some point. But Paul also tells us, remember who you are now. Remember who you are now. Through his death on the cross, through his resurrection from the dead. We are in a far different place than we once were. Paul states in verses 2 and 3 that we will judge the world and angels. He doesn't elaborate on how that will come about, and I really can't shed a whole lot of light on that, even from other scriptures. There are numerous different judgments referred to in Revelation and in other places, but certainly our involvement in those is not spelled out. Nevertheless, I do believe that his words are true. Paul points out that if we will one day be involved in such weighty matters of judgment, 
we certainly ought to be able to handle more trivial matters that arise in the life of the church. As we think about the confidence that God has placed in us and the tools that he's put at our disposal, we shouldn't shrink back from our responsibility for resolving conflicts. The other points I want us to see come from verse 11. Their blessings which have come to us in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. When I was talking about remembering who you were and that, that you and I were powerless to do anything about it, remember, God was not powerless and He was already doing something about it. He did what was necessary. And because of that, we have these three blessings. First of all, we have been washed. It goes back to uh, our opening, Titus 3, verses 4 and 5. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Spirit. Again, not because of anything that we had done, but because of what Christ did for us, we've been cleansed. The, the filth of that sin has been removed from our lives, and we have been made new creatures in Him. We have also been sanctified. I know we're throwing out some big words, but we might as well look at them. Paul has listed them for us. We have been sanctified. To be sanctified means that you have been set apart to be holy. We have a new nature that's free from the, the power and control of sin. We have a new calling to serve God fully with our lives. Sanctification is a process that begins when we accept Jesus as Lord and Savior and continues until He calls us home from this world. And it, it involves growing more like Him, becoming more pure, more holy. It means taking a hold of his plan for our lives and really living that out. And he adds, we have been justified. That means that we have been made right with God. We're clothed in his righteousness rather than our sinfulness. Through the blood of Jesus, God sees us as sinless, perfect, innocent, guiltless. It's this justification that allows us to be part of God's family. His dearly loved sons and daughters. And this is what opens the door to eternal life and to the riches of heaven. I think the key to this attitude of vulnerability, this willingness to be wrong, is living out the transition between who we were and who we have become. We should be willing to be wronged because of how amazingly we have been righted. Again, there was nothing we could do to improve our situation, but God in His grace and mercy satisfied His justice and righted the situation for us. If you want to examine justice versus mercy on a scale, the justice of what we deserve because of our sins and the mercy of what we were spared, those scales are tilted greatly in our favor. So who are we to demand justice? Put another way, we should be willing to give up what we deserve when we consider how much we've been given which we do not deserve. Let me say that again. We should be willing to give up what we deserve when we consider how much we've been given which we do not deserve. God has opened up His grace to us and, and poured out blessings. 
which, which we could never in our wildest dreams earn or deserve. So can we truly stand and demand what we feel we deserve? In Philippians 2, the writer talks about how Jesus emptied himself uh, of his rightful place in heaven, of, of some of the prerogatives of his godhood, and came to earth in order to be our Savior. If, if Jesus was willing to give up what was rightly his and submit himself to all that injustice for us, should we not, willing to, should we not be willing to be wronged rather than to damage the body of Christ? Ken Canfield tells of a family vacation when his daughter Sarah got a little ornery with her sister Hannah. Did you push your sister, he asked. No, she denied. Since this was becoming a growing pattern for Sarah, he decided to take a walk with her and get to the bottom of things. Sarah, he told her, I'm really disappointed with your behavior. What do you need to do about it? He expected Sarah to tell him that she needed to stop lying or apologize to her sister. But instead, with tears in her eyes, she said, I need to ask Jesus to come into my heart. He says, there I was zeroing in on behavior modification, and my six-year-old daughter was dealing with the bigger issues of needing forgiveness, cleansing, and internal spiritual change. I was focused on morality. She on the spirituality that makes morality possible and sincere. We will never get to the point that Paul talks about through behavior modification. We'll never be able to resolve the conflicts in the church, in our marriages, in our families, in our workplaces, even in our own lives, or any of the, those other myriad of places of conflicts that are out there. We'll never be able to conquer Satan and turn away from activities that characterize life outside of his kingdom until we become like Sarah and recognize our need to have Jesus Christ in our hearts and lives. We'll never change until we come to him and allow him to enter us and transform us from the inside out. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us. That when we were far from you and could do nothing about it, you did what was necessary to bring us to you. And you took away the condemnation that was so rightly ours and put it on yourselves. Lord, help us to live as those who have received great mercy. And help us to show that great mercy to those around us. In Jesus' name we pray.